Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000021 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I will be your host through to eight this evening. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners from where I am broadcasting this evening, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and those that are emerging. Um, but as you may have gathered, The Mission is a show about issues that affect people on the wrong arm of the social justice scale in this country. Me being a Yorta Yorta man, I feel that I could present this show to you in an authentic way by covering issues that impact my people, Aboriginal Australians. Of course, that's not to say that from time to time we won't cover issues outside the First Nations sphere. But when there is so much happening, so many things of import being done by, and in many cases to Aboriginal people, it's kind of hard to take your eyes off the ball. So over the past 21 weeks, we've spoken to and learned much from many very deadly people. I dare not list them off. The names, uh, that is, just out of fear of leaving someone off the list. Um, but if you want to get a sense of who I mean, just go to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au, and there you can listen to any episode of the mission that you like, anything that's occurred over the last 21 weeks. But of course, to tonight's show, and speaking of deadly, it really doesn't get much deadlier than our two guests this evening. In a moment, I'll be joined by the one and only Marcia Langton. Marcia has been a giant of the Australian public life for a few decades now. Her contribution to the cause, the Aboriginal cause, whilst fitting in a stellar academic career, simply can't be underestimated. Her latest contribution is a new book, a revised version of her highly acclaimed and successful Welcome to Country. This new version is orientated towards a, uh, a younger audience, and I've had a look at the book, and uh, it absolutely succeeds in that reorientation. So we'll yarn about that and some of the things in studio shortly. And later in the hour, I'll also be joined in studio by the multi-talented Amos Roach. He has produced and directed a show for the Fringe Festival entitled Neon Corroboree, a show about ghost stories from the Kulin Nations told with dance, stories that tell of the night spirits, the lights we shouldn't follow, the places we shouldn't swim, the things we should not move. And it absolutely <laughs> sounds fabulous. Word on the street is that he's bringing his didgeridoo in, so I hope, uh, I hope he does that so we can um, hear he's one of the best didge players I've actually ever heard. So it's going to be another great show. The best way to get in contact with me is via Twitter. My handle is at Mr. DT James. So pour yourself something or other, or finish up with the dishes, or turn that wireless up in the car. This is the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. Triple R. So to tonight's first guest, and I'm not nervous at all. <laughs> um, she doesn't really need an introduction, but um, I'll afford her one anyway. Um, Professor Marcia Langton AM is a descendant of the Yemen and Binjara nations. Marcia is an anthropologist and geographer and since 2000 has held the Foundation Chair of Australia Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. 
She's long been one of Australia's leading intellectuals and provocateurs. Most importantly, from my perspective, Marcia has been a tireless and powerful advocate on a range of issues affecting Aboriginal people and communities all over the country. She's the author of a new book, a revised version of a highly acclaimed and successful Welcome to Country. It has been reworked to focus on a, on a youth or school audience. It's fabulous and will no doubt remain a valuable resources for future generations. Marcia Langton, welcome to the mission. Thank you so much, Daniel. Very good of you to be here. I know you've been doing the rounds left, right and centre. So thanks for coming into our little studio here in uh, East Brunswick. Um, there is a very well-known bout of selective amnesia that has affected Australian education systems. Uh, what are the chances of those systems and the people that run those systems, what are the chances of them regaining their collective memory when it comes to true history in this country? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Um, actually, at the request of the publisher. So Melissa Kaiser, or Kaiser, is the publisher at Hardy Grant, and I taught her 20 years ago at the University of Melbourne. That's Andy. Yeah, so <laughs> she did my um, Gama Fieldwork course and came up to Arnhem Land. It was a 25-point unit. I made the students read lots and... Um, do some very serious assessment. I, I had them living in the bush at Gulkala, you know, before it got all swish as it is today with actual hot running water. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, she said to me um, last year, you know, uh, that she had no idea that all of this existed because she didn't learn anything about it in school. So she... Being in the position that she's in, she came up, came up with the idea of doing a, uh, a youth edition and, uh, you know, I jumped at the chance because I've been working on a curriculum project for some time. It's online on the yeah. University of Melbourne and we, we had a wonderful group of about 30 collaborators. Bruce Pascoe was on our expert panel, as was um, Aaron Korn, Bill Gamage, Ian Anderson, quite a few, you know. <laughs> Crendler, Crendler. Yeah. So, you know, I went looking for the experts and I had people like Brad Mogridge, the Aboriginal geographer, helping, and uh, Chris Matthews, the mathematician, Luke Pearson of Indigenous X. And together we put together 42 resources linked to the Australian curriculum framework by year level, learning area, content description, but using three bodies of Indigenous knowledge, astronomy, water and fire. Yep. And, uh, and we had Melinda Sawyers, who did the teacher's notes for this book, actually. 180 pages. 180 worth. pages of teacher's notes for this book online at the Hardy Grant website. So no excuse. There's no... <laughs> yes, well, precisely. So the point is, with those 42 resources, which are beautiful... Um, which use Indigenous knowledge to teach into the learning areas using um, rigorous sources, scientific sources where necessary. Yep. Um, and Melinda's um, excellent 180 pages of teacher's notes, this book and more to follow. And, oh, I should mention the 50 Words Project at the Research Unit yes. for Indigenous Language at the University of Melbourne. And there's much more out there as well. Um, the the plan is to blitz the country, 
um, with curriculum, Fantastic. with Indigenous curriculum. And if the authorities won't put it on the curriculum, uh, teachers will come across it yep. um, because I'll, I'll be there um, <laughs> and uh, they will want to use it. Yeah. Well, it, it, the, the, the book itself has everything that you would want. You know, it has, you know, insights into traditional ways of life. It has insights into colonialism. It has insights to um, the arts, you know, music, um, all of that. So it's a, it's a ready-made resource ready there for, for teachers to pick up. Why has there been a reticence to include our stories in, in the curriculum? Well, you know, the thing is, it's, it's supposed to be there. Yeah, and There's a cross-curriculum priority. There are three cross-curriculum priorities that are integral to the Australian curriculum framework, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures is one of them. And it's not optional. It's that all the documentation says it's integral to the curriculum framework. So as far as I'm concerned, that means that it's a compulsory part of the curriculum. But even while there are many, many resources available... Um, and most good projects do teachers' notes these days, mm-hmm. um, and and they're easy to find online. Um, teachers say a number of things about why they don't teach it. One, it's not set on the curriculum. Two, they're afraid. Three, they don't know whether the resources are any good or whether they're approved. They're fearful of being criticised, not just by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also, I think, by their teaching community. They are overworked. They have too much curriculum already. And, you know, while most of those um, obstacles or, you know, the reasons that they claim for not doing it, are legitimate. Um, You know, I'm the first to recognise that teachers are overworked. Um, I think at the same time they have a responsibility to teach the the cross-curriculum priority and my effort has been to make it easy for them to do that. Well, you you are basically putting it on a silver platter with this resource. Yeah. You think some of the reticence is because um, many teachers themselves never knew about true Aboriginal history, the true history of Australia when when they were going through the education system themselves? That's mostly true, yeah. Of course, you know, almost everybody says to me, we were never taught this in school. Yeah. I didn't know this. Why didn't I know this? Um, And uh, every now and again I meet somebody who says, you know, I realised later in life that I was lucky. We had a great teacher who did teach us something about Indigenous people, um, but then I realised I had so much more to learn. People s- say that to me every now and again, and um, and then they ask me, well, why don't all students learn this in school? So uh, I've been trying to deal with that by by making curriculum easily available, but I think there's more to it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've never been taught this, in, your, in school, if it's not been part of your education, either at school or university, then naturally you're going to be nervous and you may not know how to teach it. If you've, um, <coughs> you know, done 12 years of maths and 
you're a maths teacher and you might have a university degree in a relevant field, <coughs> you'll have a pretty good idea of how to teach it and the, you know, what you learn when you do your teaching degree equips you to teach maths, yep. to teach English, um, to teach chemistry. Um, it's not that hard. Yeah. However, in a field like this, and what, what, it, it what would field be would difficult. You it? Sorry, which what field would you describe it as? Well, well, normally um, you'd say it's Indigenous studies. Yeah. Um, in a at a university level, it would be Indigenous studies, but it's many things. It's many things. It's yes. Right. So you know, I've I've encompassed quite a few disciplines in this book, um, and. Um, you know, so for instance, the astronomy um, mm. section, uh, I've relied on the work of uh, Dwayne Hamaker and his colleagues, many of whom are Aboriginal. Um, and the, and Dwayne is uh, the new Associate Professor of Cultural Astronomy at the University of Melbourne in our Department of Physics. And he, with his colleagues, um, put together the aboriginalastronomy.com.au website and they've published papers, they've made videos, they've done texts for kids, um, and uh, they, they, all of them do a lot of public speaking. So you might have come across some of the young Aboriginal astronomers who've been um, appearing Absolutely. at events. Yeah. Um, so good. Yeah, they're so, wonderful, aren't they? Yeah. Um, Such a fascinating area too. And a fascinating area. So, uh, so well, that's astronomy, yeah. you know. So that discipline is uh, one of the disciplines I rely on. I mean, obviously I rely on archaeology because where does the big number 65,000 years come from? It comes from the work of, you know, the archaeologist Clarkson in uh, Arnhem Land. Yeah, it's not made up. It's not made up. And uh, uh, languages, I go to uh, Rachel Nordlinger, mm -hmm. who, who was on the expert panel for the other curriculum project as well. She's a great linguist. Um, and she started up the 50 Words project uh, based on um, our original National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Curricular Project because that was the first um, commission. So the so Minister Scullion wanted every Aboriginal, oh, well, every Australian child in primary school to be examined on on... 50 Aboriginal words before they left primary school. And I couldn't do it. Mm. And, I, and I had to explain uh, to him, the department and my colleagues, why it just wasn't possible. Um, so, uh, I mean, this is one of the problems. This is one of the inherent difficulties of the whole area. So I'll just turn to that for a minute. Sure. Okay, here we are in Woiwurrung country. Yep. Um, and if the curriculum doesn't have Woiwurrung content, the Woiwurrung people, the Wurundjeri, are going to be pretty upset about it sure, naturally, sure. right? So how do you do that? Well, it's very difficult. So then you would have to go to people who've been working with Woiwurrung, and I, I think there are a few, Yeah. Um, and uh, that you have to create some texts with it. Um, you have to do the history of what happened here. Um, that's not so easy to do. No. Um, you might want to do the geography of Melbourne, uh, and uh, there is some very interesting geography of Melbourne, some interesting paleoecology, and um, and actually, um, geogra the geographers um, Reed and Nunn 
have found stories related to Melbourne uh, in the records that show that um, people here preserved at least 1,500 years and possibly up to, I think, 7,000 years of oral history um, related to the um, sea levels. Right. So, you know, there is content, but the thing is it's really hard work to do it properly, acknowledging um, this country, the people who belong here and so on. And if you had to do it for every Every. one of the 600 language varieties in Australia, which the gumbay.com.au website tells us exist, it's enormous. And so where does a teacher start? I mean, you know, you can send an email to the Wurundjeri Council, but what if all of the teachers in Melbourne sent an email to the Wurundjeri Council? That's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So you have to deliver to teachers the content and you have to make it easy for them to put it into the classroom. Um, and, you know, I think, look, eventually one day, and we ha- it started already, we will have every Aboriginal cultural centre and tribal council and, you know, native title group developing their own curriculum centres or curriculum projects and doing it. And there's a lot of work that's being done. But for a teacher to actually apply it in their own area, to get permission from the traditional owners, to have traditional owners speak in their class or at their school, that is very, very difficult. We've all tried, we have all tried... And it so often doesn't happen. And one thing a curriculum has to be is consistent and it has to be delivered on time, you well, know. One of the major challenges is that, you know, after, you know, colonialism or during colonialism, language and cultures were absolutely decimated. So to try and retrieve and regain that knowledge, you have to dig very, very, very deep. And... It's very time-consuming. It's very arduous. I guess one of the things that we probably could do moving forward, and this is where the Uluru Statement from the Heart, to a certain extent, goes to trying to rectify this, is to try and get these systems right from the outset. To We have education systems now. We have health systems that are always being retrofitted for, for Aboriginal people and, 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 and our needs. I guess having a voice at the heart of our democracy goes to some way to, okay, decision makers, policy makers, we now have the opportunity to get the Aboriginal voice in first before we go gallivanting down the road to trying to fix the problem. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I I cover that in the book. I saw that. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important for young Australians to know about that. Yeah. Um, you, you put the you've got the Uluru statement in its whole yes entirety within, yeah. within the book yeah and it's beautifully written it is um, it's a fabulous document look many people have tried to do this before me I'm not saying that I'm the first person to do it in fact um, last year I presented at the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Education Conference in Adelaide and so many Aboriginal educators were there. And they are very familiar with the problems I'm describing. Mm. Um, look, some some states are mo- moving cautiously towards the dream, right? So uh, Tasmania is doing a great job. The Tasmanian Education Department is developing uh, 
uh, an official um, Palawa curriculum. And I've seen bits of it. It's gorgeous. Very, very good. And they've got some wonderful Palawa people working on it. Queensland, likewise, is um, heading towards having, you know, a nice curriculum. And I hope they're interested in my book. And and interestingly, you know, one of the things uh, that I found fascinating about Queensland is that in southeast Queensland, the education department has closed the gap on year 12 completions. Right. And they've done it through um, case management. Um, so, you know, everybody says, you know, the education targets aren't being met. That's just not true when you drill down to the granular level. And it's it's something that a lot of, a lot of people wouldn't think capable of being achieved in a place like Queensland. Because, um, you know, us, you know, I'm not going to denigrate you, Marcia, as a Queenslander. But, you know, here in Victoria, we're very proud of being a pro- progressive state. We have a progressive state government. But it does go to show that Queensland is a much larger state, um, a much larger population. And the fact that they're achieving that, you know, closing the gap in, in year 12 attainment is something that... Just um, in southeast Queensland so far, but that's a huge but achievement. That's, that's, but that's... Probably the largest population of Aboriginal people in Australia, isn't it? That that southeast section of Queensland, Brisbane. It's one of the biggest. I think um, Western Sydney is Western even Sydney. bigger. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm. All right. I'll stand corrected then. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what role does uh, social media play in the discourse around these issues? I, you know, I'm, I follow you on Twitter and, you know, you follow me on Twitter and the the bin fire that c- can be Twitter at times, both from non-Aboriginal people but also from fellow Aboriginal people, you know, mm. the, that lateral violence that occurs if yeah. you don't actually partake in, you know, some sections of the thought police. Social media as a whole, has it been positive or negative to, to moving towards meaningful discussions around these issues? Well, it depends on who's curating it, doesn't it? Yeah. So if you look at Luke Pearson's work, mm-hmm. it's genius. Yeah. Um, so he has, um, with the, you know, Indigenous X, um, um, what do you call that, Avatar? Yeah, the Avatar, yeah. The Avatar, yeah. So each week there's a different Aboriginal person or Torres Strait Islander person. That was you, a real breakthrough, that and, idea. And they tweet all week, and I've done it once, I think. Yeah. Um, and then they have to, by Thursday, they have to have, sub- or by Wednesday night, they have to have submitted an article to The Guardian. Yeah. And so each week there's an article by the Indigenous the X person um, in The Guardian, and it's just glorious. And if it's done, if it's done right, and, and if the, the host really gets into it, it's, it's not only tremendously informative, but it's also potentially life-changing for that host. It is. It's just the exposure they get. Yeah, that's now, right. I think, I think um, Indigenous X has like 50,000 followers now, people from all sorts of fields that are really engaged in Indigenous affairs, non-Aboriginal people, Aboriginal people. But then that article in The Guardian as well, you get a massive readership out of that. You've you got a real opportunity to not only promote your cause but also promote yourself. So um, if people aren't familiar with it, it's at Indigenous X on, um, on, on Twitter. Um it is 28 past seven. You're listening to Triple R, The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm speaking to Professor Marcia Langton about her excellent book, Welcome to Country, An Introduction to Our First Peoples for Young Australians. Now, one of the things I like in the book, and I was um, talking to you about this before, 
you, you haven't shied away from trying to describe what native title is. Now, if there's an issue that, you know, you can have your astronomy, but if there's an issue that is vexed, then one of the most complicated areas of law that you'll ever come across, it is native title. And I'll give you kudos, you've done a brilliant job of really explaining uh, the Native Title Act from a historic turning point of view. Um, how difficult was it to sort of narrow that down for this audience, for a younger audience? Oh, I did have to ask my daughter for help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I did 10 years of research on Native Title Agreements. Yeah, you lived it. Yeah, and of course, yeah, I was on the original negotiating team and, you know, I've worked on native title claims. Not recently, though. Yeah. Um, I think I'd rather pull my eyeballs out, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, and I don't keep up with all the, you know, the new trends in native title. I'm trying to. But, uh, look, it is a terribly complex field. And so I wrote the chapter and I thought, this will put everybody to sleep. So I did actually, I have to admit, call on my daughter Ruby's um, good offices and ask her to give me a hand to make sure that it was explained very clearly. I, I assume she'll be getting a percentage. <laughs> well, she um, she just finished her law degree at UNSW and she's a good writer. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it, it comes across really succinctly. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you, if you I, mean, I encourage adults, if you ever want to get your head around what native title uh, is and was and, and what the turning point in, you know, the national conversation around that, go and get the book because it, it lays it out beautifully. I, I haven't shied away from the stolen generations, nope. uh, political history, the frontier massacres. I've tried to mention everything, but I have all... It's very important to me that young people come away after reading this book with a positive view. Yeah. So I've put in the music, the art, the theatre, the poetry, um, you know, the glorious bits of our history, um, you know, the the 67 referendum, um, NAIDOC week. Yep. Uh, and, and so I, I think one of our big problems is that the Indigenous sector complains so much and, you know, plenty to complain about. Sure. But the problem is we need to listen to our discourse and be very careful that we ourselves are not contributing to uh, this very the very poor views that are held about us out in the non-Indigenous community. Yeah. We need to tell people about our great achievements. Well, one area that's been fascinating me recently, just personally, is, you know, the evolution of Aboriginal culture since, you know, since invasion. And I think that's one thing that this book, I don't know whether it was an aim or not, but it really does cover that evolution, you know. Cult, but many people think of Aboriginal people as having a, a sort of a stagnant, you know, um, culture, something that's always been really traditional and, you know, there are remnants left of that. But since invasion... Aboriginal people have actually thrived in terms of redefining themselves and re redefining their own, their own culture. And I think one of the ways that we've done that is via, you know, attaching ourselves or creating the social justice movement in this country. Yeah, I think our, our people have been the genius civil rights campaigners. Unbelievable. Huge wins. Yeah. Um, and yes, and, it, and the, my approach to describing uh, the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures have uh, adapted to, um, to 
not just colonialism but post-colonialism, is very deliberate. Yes. Uh, because I don't want all of our young people who have identity problems to, to say to me, oh, but we don't have a culture, we lost our culture. I hate hearing that. Yeah. You know, I... I say to your your yorta yorta. I say to young yorta yorta people, "What do you mean you don't have a culture? Haven't you seen the sapphires?" And they look at me like I'm crazy. I say, "That's your, That's culture. your culture." Yeah, yeah. And we, we we redefined it. You know, we we, yeah. we redefined what it meant to be Aboriginal. You know, recognizing that in you know many parts of Australia, particularly down here in the southeast, the traditional way of life was you know obliterated, and so we've had to redefine what it is to be Aboriginal. Um, I'll uh, ask you one or two more questions before I let you go. Very cool jacket, by the way. I like it. Um, So in your lifetime, what do you think has been the single biggest advancement in the treatment and acceptance of Aboriginal people in this country? Objectively, I have to say it's native title. Hmm. Because native title gave uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all over the country a seat at the table. Now, you might have lost your native title claim, but you got a seat at the table. Yeah. And, you know, native title law is horrible. Mm. It, the Native Title Act is really an extinguishment act, and many people have said that. And a lot of Aboriginal people have had their native title extinguished. So, uh, and many have had that recognised. But if um, you think about the fallout from nearly 30 years of the operations of the Native Title Act now, you know, it put us into the legal landscape of this nation in a way that nothing else has. Yeah. So you got the... Um, oh, I think you got the Aboriginal Settlement Act in Victoria as a result of the Native Title Act. And I think the injustice of the Native Title Act is what's led to the treaty movement. Oh, absolutely. You so, mean. you know, the, the ripples from the Native Title Act... Uh, you know, complex but profound. And what do you, what? I'll get your views. What? How do you think the treaty process is is going to roll out here in Victoria? I think it's 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 lively, and there's a lot of um, uh, competing views and a lot of strong personalities involved. Do you hold out hope that we can get some sort of meaningful treaty arrangements here in Victoria? I do, but you better get cracking. Yeah. And grab this window of opportunity, and yeah. also make sure that it is a real treaty. Make sure that it is a comprehensive settlement, that the Crown is a party and that um, there is uh, as, as much as is possible, especially given Koori politics, um, <laughs> informed consent, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, look, I think it's, it's looking good. I think the, the real leadership of the, of the treaty movement, and I've, I talk to a few of them often, um, are very, very sound leaders with good yeah. hearts and, um, you know, strong vision. Yeah, I think by and large there's going to be a lot of sensible, strong people sitting around the table. So mm. um, I just hope I hope it, for all our sakes it, it just goes smoothly. But um, I will let you go. Just before you go, though, we're a young population and what we're seeing now, particularly around things like the the activism happening around the Jabberong um uh, issue up in uh, Western Victoria around the extension of the Western Highway, we are seeing a whole new generation of Aboriginal, young Aboriginal people come up through through the ranks. Mm. You're someone who's been at this now for, you know, longer than you probably care to remember. 
What advice would you give those young leaders as they continue to rise up through the ranks and, and be the voice for their people? Well, you know, I'll sound like an old school mum, but uh, from my experience, um, I would say the first thing is education. Mm-hmm. Get the best education that you possibly can. Stay in the education system for as long as you can. Uh, and, you know, if you want to be an effective leader, um, these days it's not good enough, uh, you know, to come from the community uh, with a good heart and a good vision you actually do have to have a whole lot of skills, many of which come from having a university degree, come from having a career yep. um, in a you know hard-ass job um, where you have to perform, um, and um, having skills that you learn um, on the job, um, project management, um, good use of social media, effective communication, good writing, um, communicating with diverse audiences and also, um, most importantly, critical thinking mm-hmm. and um, being able to do research. It's not good enough to throw slogans around anymore. You have to know your um, your topic. You have to be well-informed. Um, you can't get your facts wrong. Everybody gets fact-checked these days. And people will just turn off if you just scream slogans. Yeah. You have to be persuasive. You have to learn the art of persuasion. And that involves lots of skills, writing, speaking, um, emailing, social media, uh, turning up at community meetings, lobbying, lobbying parliaments, lobbying businesses. Uh, so you're making it sound difficult. Well, it is actually. <laughs> it is very difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And yeah. You're right. The, the risk is to just fall into that sloganeering and, and to rely totally and utterly and purely on things like social media. But at the end of the day, you've got to know the systems. You've got to know the people in the systems. And you've got to know them better than you know, your adversaries, for want of a better term. Exactly. You have to know your enemy. Yeah, and you and you have to have the attitude that you will make that enemy your friend. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, on that note, if you want to um, learn about all the things that we've discussed here tonight, it's encapsulated in a fantastic book. Welcome to Country, an introduction to our first peoples for young Australians. It's available in all good bookshops, and if it's not there, you can order it. And the um, the other version of uh, Welcome to Country, the hardcover version, is also still available in books. I saw it in um, a bookshop in Carlton the other day. So, um, Marcia Langton, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are listening to Triple R. In studio with me now is tonight's second guest, Amos Roaches of a Rajari Gundijamara man. He's a musician, stage producer, director and dancer. He has a show coming up this Saturday evening as part of the Fringe Festival. The production is called Neo Corroboree. Amos is produced and directed the show and he's now here to tell us all about it. Amos, welcome back to Triple R. Thank you. 
Thank you. You want to bring that uh, microphone down a little bit if you want? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm a bit small. So, this, the, one, of the, one of the taglines for, for, for Neon Corbury says, Dance stories, songs, didgeridoos, tapsticks, neon body paint, a fire. These are just the, some of the things that we can expect from the show. What, what else can we expect from the show, Amos? Um, you can uh, expect a bit of, bit of a sharing, sharing of, of songs and dances and languages. Um, so I guess so, um, you know, the sharing of, of the songs and dances and, and ceremony and partaking in that too. So it's more than just um, uh, than a corroboree, um, uh, you know, corroboree. It's, it's, it's a ceremony, um, um, but we needed to open it and, and make it inclusive for everyone. Um, and uh, I'll hand it over to Kat, who also helped me, Kat Herder. Well, the sorts of things you can expect along with the dance and the stories are to get up and dance yourself. Yeah, it's, it's actually, yes. there's a participatory it element of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. we expect the audience to get up. We neon paint up the audience, so you can expect to colour up as well. Wow. Yes, and... Just speaking to the mic a little bit yeah. Yeah, closer. Yeah, yeah and we expect... You can expect to have a lot of fun. It's quite spectacular. Yeah, you just showed me some um, some pictures of it, and that uh, that neon body paint is uh, uh, so vivid. Yes, that's what happens. It looks very. Some of it's quite scary, I think. But yeah, you can expect the, to, to bring a, a bring a rug and have a great time. That's what you can expect. Yeah, because it's at uh, it's outdoors at uh, King's Domain. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, in the, the gardens. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Op- opposite to this, the the. Uh, Art Gallery and the VCA, yep. there at the Grant Street intersection part on St Kilda Road. It's there. It's a good spot. Hasn't been danced on for a long time, so yeah. we've been doing that. So yeah, it's it's more like bringing everyone in, getting them, getting them to partake in in ceremony, mm-hmm. song and dance. So so we'll, we'll basically sing and dancing up country, um, and creating uh, new song lines. So so how was the show conceived? It was my idea. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Amos, had to, Amos wants to dance. Yeah. Um, a lot of the direction in, in which he wants to set his career is not just with the music. He wants to dance and we want to set up a dance troupe. And, and uh, part of uh, Herding Cats and our business's aim is to be liberational. Mm. And so... Uh, the Neon Corby is a vehicle by which we can do that. We employed 13, 13 yeah. blackfellas on Saturday night 13, yeah. wow. and five, five others. So it, it will be a vehicle by which we can have dancers, production crew, all that sort of stuff go go to places and put this on and, 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 yeah, and for lots of people to have fun because we want to make connections between all the communities and dance on country. It sounds awesome. You've brought your dig in, Yep, Amos. yep, yep, brought it in for Now, I've, I've been uh, in uh, your presence before when you've, when you've <laughs> played played this. You want to just get it ready for that. No worries, brother. Um, he is one of the best dig players I've, um, I've ever heard, really. <laughs> so, you. you know, if you want to just get a bit of a taste of what to expect on um, 
Saturday night. The show starts at 7pm on Saturday at King's Domain. For information and ticketing, just head to the festival's website, melbournefringe.com.au, and just search for uh, Neon Corroboree. And Mob, get in for free. Um, so if anybody uh, wants to, I'll book a, a raft of tickets anyway, but um, people can, can contact Amos Roach or Cat Herder or the page Herding Cats Management and Events and message me and I'll send you a code and then you can get in for free and as many tickets as your, your family wants. Please come we want you all there it was so much fun it was amazing yeah it's going to be awesome well when you're ready Amos take it away Most excellent indeed. So we, you'll be dancing as well. Yes, also also performing and, uh, and uh, you know, um, uh, alongside of uh, nephews and, and a lot of family. So it'll be good, and hopefully we can get a lot of lot of dance down. And yep, and the Jiri Jiri dancers, of course, uh, and, they're great. And yeah, so they open up, and um, and we want to want to get get as many mob down there. So come down and and um, you know bring your bring your your nargans and your lap laps and your <laughs> You know, everything there and, and uh, your, your dance stuff and come down, especially all your family, if you want to come down and dance. Paint uh, up in the neon Come down Saturday. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, hopefully it's something that could become an annual thing too, hey? That'd be oh, definitely. Farm next. Oh, great. Yes. So we in October? Yes, yeah, October, November we'll be in Collingwood Farm next. And then we want to take it out to the suburbs and go everywhere with it and, yep. Okay, well, um, you know, when that time comes close, make sure you get the details to me and I'll uh, yes. make sure people... Know all about it. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Best of luck. Um, now it's on Saturday. There's a small um, footy game taking place on Saturday, so you might get a few stragglers along after that. But um, it should be um, it should be a great time. So if you want to get down there, go to the Fringe website, or if you're mob, just um, Google. Just rock up. Yeah, just rock up. And it's seven o'clock, so the the, fa- the football will be finished. Yeah. You know, you know, you'll get there by seven thirty. You'll you'll be right for a great time. Don't you worry about that. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>